the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we'll hear from Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and, well, how they don't. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We're also going to talk about the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. It spans two weekends, last weekend and this coming. We'll also focus on 11 places where persecuted Christians need our prayers. So all of that coming up. Also, I'd like to extend a personal invitation to the women listening this afternoon. 93.9 KPDQ, along with our sister station, The Fish, is hosting Girls Night Out, Know Your Worth with Revive Ministries. That's coming up this Saturday evening. Um, tickets are going fast. It's a good opportunity for you to you know check in and get yours. That's Saturday, November 9th at Northwest Christian Church on the Tigard campus. Doors will open at 6. There'll be appetizers. There's a photo booth for some fun, followed by an uplifting message with a dessert and coffee reception afterward. You can come share a laugh, be encouraged, leave feeling refreshed because you are worth it. Uh, we're going to um, have a great time. We'd love to see you there. Again, you can go to kpdq.com for all the important details, but we would love for you to join us. That's this Saturday night. Doors open at 6, Girls Night Out know your worth. Taking a look at some of the day's news, President Trump on Sunday urged Republicans uh, to the last week's House Intelligence Committee hearing to come forward with their own transcripts from the closed door meetings that Democrats claim bolstered their claim for impeachment. The president also appeared to suggest that he has information that a recent witness, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, is a never Trumper. He was uh, asked about any evidence he may have about Vindman, and he responded, we'll be showing that to you real soon. Well, Vindman, who serves as a director of the National Security Council, testified last week in a closed-door hearing about his concerns about the president's July 25th phone call with Ukraine President Zelensky and a prior meeting with Ambassador Sondland about investigating Joe Biden and his son. A whistleblower's complaint about the phone call is at the center of the House Democrats' formal impeachment inquiry of the president. The president has denied any wrongdoing, suggesting that the impeachment investigation is simply another attempt to damage his presidency after the Mueller report fell flat. The president's request from Republicans came as a lawyer from the anonymous whistleblower said Sunday his client is willing to answer written questions submitted by House Republicans. The surprise offer made to Representative Devin Nunez to uh, the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee would allow Republicans to ask questions of the whistleblower without having to go through the committee's chairman, Representative Adam Schiff. Late Sunday, House Oversight Committee ranking member Jim Jordan, a Republican from Ohio, seemingly rejected that offer from the whistleblower's attorney saying written answers will not provide a sufficient opportunity to probe all the relevant facts and cross-examine the so-called whistleblower. Meanwhile, Democrats reportedly are set to call 11 witnesses to testify in private depositions this week, including Energy Secretary Rick Perry and former National Security Advisor John Bolton. It's not clear whether any of them will, in fact, come 
to the White House, or rather to Capitol Hill. Perry, the first member of the Trump um, cabinet asked to appear before the House, is scheduled for Wednesday, according to the Associated Press. Energy Department spokeswoman Shaylin Hines indicated Friday that Perry would not appear for the closed-door hearing, but would consider testifying in a public session. The committees have invited Bolton to appear Thursday, but not issued a subpoena for his testimony. Bolton's lawyer has said he will not appear without a subpoena. And amid repeated chants of lock him up, referring to the president and Green New Deal, Representative Ilhan Omar out of Minnesota issued a full throated endorsement of Bernie Sanders at a spirited rally in Minneapolis. Williams Arena on Sunday night, saying a mass movement of the working class is indeed to take down Donald Trump and end Western imperialism. I am excited for President Bernie Sanders, Omar uh, thundered at the conclusion of her remarks at, uh, as rock music blared throughout the University of Minnesota venue. Now, many were struck by the uh, comment, the phrase ending Western imperialism. She did not define precisely what she was referring to. At no point did either Omar or Sanders attempt to stop attendees from shouting, lock him up with uh, whenever Trump was invoked last year, CNBC's John Harwood had predicted that any serious Democratic candidate will make a point of shutting down such chants directed at the president. We'll see how that goes. After the Federal Aviation Administration and Boeing say that currently grounded 737 MAX jets are safe to fly. Airlines reportedly plan to do their own special tests to reassure the public, however. The carriers will do their own demonstration flights without passengers, according to the Wall Street Journal. The test flights will have senior officials on board to raise confidence. It could take a month or more to pass between uh, when regulators clear the plane to fly and when airlines are ready for passengers to board again. The 737 MAX jets were grounded worldwide eight months ago following two deadly accidents. American and United have taken the 737 MAX off its schedule until January, and Southwest has pulled it until February. With wildfires ravaging rather many parts of California, the president put pressure on Governor Gavin Newsom on Sunday morning by suggesting there won't be any more federal funding to battle the wildfires unless the state improves its forest management system. In a series of tweets on Sunday, the president wrote that um, Newsom, a Democrat, has done a terrible job of forest management. Every year, as the fires rage and California burns, it is the same thing. And then he comes to the federal government for financial help. No more, Trump wrote. Get your act together, Governor. You don't see uh, close to the level of burn in other states, end quote. Well, Governor Newsom responded by tweeting, you don't believe in climate change. You are excused from this conversation, end quote. McDonald's announced the ouster of its CEO, Steve Easterbrook, on Sunday over an inappropriate relationship with an employee. The company's board determined that Easterbrook's uh, violated company policy and demonstrated poor judgment involving a recent consensual relationship with an employee, it announced. Desiree Moore, an attorney for Easterbrook, said that Easterbrook acknowledges his error in judgment and supports the company's decision. McDonald's named Chris Kim Sawiski, or something very close to that, the McDonald's USA president as its new president and CEO. He was also elected to the board of directors. And the federal government's debt surpassed $23 trillion for the first time as annual deficits once again near $1 trillion. And the first batch of Mueller probe interview notes involving Rick Gates, Steve Bannon and Michael Cohen have been released. Representative Jim Jordan has rejected the whistleblower's offer to provide written answers to GOP questions. And uh, former President Obama, his appointed judge, has blocked the health care rule for immigrants uh, that was 
pushed by President Trump. And the EPA is rolling back Obama-era anti-coal regulations, and President Trump has named Chad Wolf as the acting director of the Department of Homeland Security. Iran has announced new nuke deal violations during a commemoration of the 1979 U.S. embassy seizure. And thousands of migrants have been sent back to Mexico under the president's policy, giving up um, their asylum claims. And smugglers are sawing through new sections of the president's border wall. You can read more about that at the Washington Post. On this day in history, 1980, Republican Ronald Reagan wins the White House as he defeats President Jimmy Carter by a strong margin. On this day in 1979, the Iran hostage crisis begins as militants storm the U.S. embassy in Tehran, seizing its occupants. For some of them, it would be the start of a 444-day captivity. 1991, President Ronald Reagan opens his presidential library in Simi Valley, California. President Herbert Walker Bush, former President Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon all attend the first ever gathering of five past and present U.S. chief executives. On this day in 1995, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated by a right-wing Israeli minutes after attending a festive uh, peace rally. And on this day in 2008... Barack Obama is elected the first African-American president of the United States, defeating Republican John McCain. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and currency. Well, House Democrats that are leading the uh, Trump impeachment inquiry publicly released the first transcripts from their closed door interviews today, airing concerns from witnesses about the activities of President Trump's associates related to Ukraine. There's an outcry from Republicans that the proceedings are being conducted in private and that even those uh, uh, interviews that have been released have been selected to support the narrative of the Democrats. Well, the panel released testimony from former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, Marie uh, Yovanovitch and Michael McKinley, a former senior advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, both have appeared on Capitol Hill for testimony as part of the inquiry. Among revelations in the transcripts, Yovanovitch uh, testified that Ukraine told her about Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani's campaign to oust her. Yovanovitch was pushed out of her job in May on Trump's orders. Yovanovitch said she learned from Ukrainian officials last November or December that Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, was in touch with Ukraine. Ukraine's former top prosecutor, uh, and that they had uh, plans and that they were going to, you know, do things, including to me, end quote. Well, basically, it was people in the Ukrainian government who said that Mr. Uh, Letsenko, the former prosecutor general, was in communication with Mayor Giuliani, she said. McKinley, meanwhile, said in her deposition that part of the reason her resignation was, um, uh, or rather he resigned, was he was a witness to State Department officials trying to dig up dirt on the president's opponents, something he hadn't seen in 37 years in the Foreign Service. To see the emerging information on the engagement of our mission to procure negative political information for domestic purposes, combined with the failure I saw in the building to provide support for our professional cadre in a particularly trying time. I think the combination was a pretty good reason to decide I had no longer a useful role
role to play, McKinley said in that testimony. The interviews were released by Representative Adam Schiff of the House Intelligence Committee, Representative Elliot Engel of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and Representative Carolyn Maloney of the Oversight and Reform Committee. In a statement, the three Democrats said, as we move forward in this public phase of the impeachment inquiry, the American people will begin to see for themselves the evidence that the committees have collected. With each new interview, we learn more about the president's attempt to manipulate the levers of power in his uh, to his personal political benefit. House Republicans in recent days have called on Democrats to release the full transcripts rather than selective portions, saying the selective leaking in which the House Intelligence Committee has been engaged must end immediately and the full and complete record must be provided for the American people to see. Liz Cheney, a Wyoming Republican, a member of the House GOP leadership, wrote a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last week. In her testimony, Yovanovitch also told investigators that she was not disloyal to the president. I have heard the allegation in the media that I supposedly told our, our embassy team to ignore the president's orders since he was going to be impeached. She said that allegation is false. I've never said such a thing in my embassy colleagues to them or anyone else. Yovanovitch was recalled from Kiev as Giuliani pressed Ukrainian officials to investigate corruption allegations against Joe Biden's son, Hunter, who was involved with a gas company there. Speaking to reporters at the Capitol, Schiff said Democrats will release more transcripts selectively, including from U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, and former U.S. Envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker. The resolution passed by the House last week authorized the committee to make the inquiry transcripts of their recent uh, depositions, rather, and interviews public in advance of open hearings. However, there are not rules that require them to release the full transcripts. They can choose selective portions, which continues to frustrate Republicans. Rolling back a last-minute regulation put in place under the former president, uh, President Obama, President Trump administration is being praised by Christian conservatives for defending religious freedom with a newly proposed rule from the Department of Health and Human Services that would allow faith-based foster care and adoption services to receive federal funding even if they turn away couples because of their religious beliefs. The new rule proposed on Thursday reverses regulations under the Obama administration that required religious organizations to get a waiver in order to apply for an HHS grant unless they include sexual orientation as a protected trait under anti-discrimination protections. The move angered the LGBTQ activists and progressives who argue it will decrease the number of available homes, something that actually happened as local government and states enacted the Obama-era rule largely targeting Roman Catholic and evangelical Protestant organizations, according to the Wall Street Journal. In an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal Monday, Russell Moore said the Trump administration took a major step toward addressing the problem of religious organizations that hold a biblical definition of marriage between a man and a woman being punished in proxy culture wars that don't focus on the welfare of children. Moore points to the city of Philadelphia, barring Catholic social services from placing children in homes in March of 2018 because of the Catholic Church's teaching on marriage and Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel citing the rule when attempting to cancel a state-approved foster care and adoption services contract with St. Vincent Catholic Charities. Charities shouldn't have to choose between their religious views and beliefs in putting uh, that before helping the needy. Stephanie Hamill, a video columnist, uh, told Shannon Bream on Fox News 
uh, at night. Family Research Council President Tony Perkins said the need for this action is unfortunately evident as various state and local governments have trampled upon religious freedom protections and the First Amendment, forcing the shutdown of faith-based adoption providers that declined to leave their faith at the door. The Catholic Association uh, said the rollback helps free religious organizations to help needy kids without having to violate their belief that children do best in a home with married mother and father. Agencies that uh, find loving foster and adoptive homes shouldn't be subjected to ideological shakedowns by the government. It's another quote from Andrea uh, Picciotti, Bayer, a legal advisor for the Catholic Association Foundation. Activists on the left, however, argue the administration's plan will reduce the number of qualified parents who want to adopt or foster a child. You really need to be uh, the need... Uh, the needs of needy in front of religious beliefs when it comes to these issues, says the Catalina Magazine founder, a Catholic herself. Religious liberty is not a license to discriminate. The American Civil Liberties Union said in a tweet, the needs of children in our foster care system must come first. Both sides making the same argument from very different platforms. And President Donald Trump's go-to spiritual advisor and longtime prayer partner, Paula White, has been named to an official White House position in the Office of Public Liaison, according to the New York Times and the Religion News Service, confirming on Friday. White is a Florida televangelist, often associated with the prosperity gospel. She joins the administration's outreach effort through the Faith and Opportunity Initiative, the Times wrote, formed last year through an executive order. The initiative set out to deepen faith-based partnerships, particularly around poverty relief and to protect religious liberty on the federal level. Paula White, who met Trump 17 years ago through her televised sermons, was among the 25 evangelical advisors who joined his campaign in 2016. She visits with the president regularly to pray and discuss faith and politics. This year, she appeared with the president during several official events, including his religious liberty address to the U.N. and a White House gathering of persecuted religious minorities from around the world. White has not made an announcement or confirmed the appointment on social media. She stepped down from her church in Orlando in May. Before praying at Trump's inauguration in 2017, she told Christianity Today there was a possibility she would assume an official White House role. After more than two years of prayer breakfasts, National Day of Prayer ceremonies, and Oval Office prayer meetings, the controversial but popular preacher has reportedly done just that. The Faith and Opportunity Initiative was announced in 2018, the spring, the first move to formalize the uh, Trump administration's faith efforts. President George W. Bush established the first faith-based initiative office in 2001, and Barack Obama renamed and reconfigured it as the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in 2009. In his first month as president, uh, President Obama Uh, He appointed uh, Pentecostal minister Joshua Du Bois, then 26, to oversee relationships with clergy and faith groups. Melissa Rogers with Obama's Faith Outreach Office shared her her advice for White House um, uh, with uh, RNS, uh, form partnerships with faith-based and humanitarian organizations to serve people in need. Do so by partnering with organizations that reflect diverse beliefs and faiths. And do this work in a way that is consistent with the Constitution, end quote. In contrast to the formal Faith Advisory Council established by his predecessor, President Trump's religious ties have maintained unofficial and ad hoc um, status. Evangelicals like Johnny Moore have said there is an open door for them at the White House. As of Friday morning, none of the pastors who gathered with the 
uh, with White to pray for the president earlier this week had publicly acknowledged the New York Times report naming her as an official White House post. White considers herself the bridge builder, introducing Trump, Trump rather to evangelical leaders as she describes her official or rather unofficial role in a 2017 interview with Christianity Today. Her relationship with the president has also been controversial among evangelicals who theologically oppose what they deem the name it and claim it approach of uh, Uh, with the uh, Word of Faith movement. Lamore commended the role the White House has played so far. She's also uh, been a very effective liaison to many types of Christians and deserves a great deal of credit, according to uh, some sources, for her role in advancing a bipartisan policy agenda. In an email to Christianity Today, Um, On Friday afternoon, listing her involvement in efforts for religious liberty protections, pro-life policies, criminal justice reform, and more. Mr. Moore noted that total theological uh, congruence is not a prerequisite for cooperation in advancing the common good. Just last week, prior to the news of her official role, professors Leah Payne and Aaron Griffith told Christianity Today, for those who do not share her theological disposition, it is wishful thinking to pretend that she is not a major force within American evangelicalism. It is now Paula White Kane's world. The question is, how will she live in it, or how should we live in it? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Democratic primary voters uh, feel that they need a, to nominate a candidate who can beat President Trump in 2020 and more think Joe Biden can do that than any of the other top Democratic hopefuls. At least that's the truth today. In addition, while most Dem- uh, Democratic primary voters are satisfied with their field, more than a quarter wish they had other options. That's according to a new Fox News poll. Uh, former Vice President uh, Joe Biden leads the nominating race with the backing of 31 percent of Democratic primary voters, followed by Elizabeth Warren with 21 percent, Bernie Sanders at 19 percent, Pete Buttigieg at 7 percent. In near, early October, Biden had 32 percent, Warren 22, Sanders 17 and Buttigieg Four, So not that much difference. Kamala Harris and Andrew Yang received 3% apiece, followed by Cory Booker, Tulsi Gabbard, and Amy Klobuchar, each at 2%. Uh, Tom Steyer at 1%. Compared to March, the first Fox News poll on the race, Biden's support is unchanged. While Warren has gained 17 points, Buttigieg is up six and Sanders down four. Biden is helped by a large majority of Democratic primary voters, 80%, saying it's extremely important for the nominee to beat Donald Trump and more, 68%, think he can do that. Uh, then uh, uh, they feel Warren can at 57% or Sanders at 54% with Buttigieg at 30 Far fewer feel it's extremely important their candidates share their views on a majority of issues. However, more Democratic primary voters also say Biden shares their views uh, than uh, say the same for Sanders. 72 percent for Joe Biden, 68 percent for Sanders, Warren at 62 percent and Buttigieg at 43. Well, since May, the number of Democratic primary voters saying it's extremely important their nominee can defeat Donald Trump has gone up seven points from 73 percent to 80 percent. And the portion saying it's extremely important their candidate shares their views has dropped Nine percentage points from 51 to 42. The poll was released on Sunday and it finds that despite 
Uh, having umpteen candidates to choose from, more than one in four Democratic primary voters wish they had other options. That's about 28 percent. That includes 26 percent of Biden supporters and 27 percent of Warren, well, uh, Warren supporters. So even though they have selected the candidate who's actually on the roster, they wish there was somebody else to choose. Seventy eight percent of GOP uh, primary voters want to keep Trump as their nominee, while 69 percent of Democratic primary voters are satisfied with their field. Well, it goes on from there. But again, Joe Biden maintains his lead. Well, Senator Elizabeth Warren has released her plan for financing Medicare for all, as it's named. She claimed it'll cost just $20.5 trillion in new federal spending over 10 years with, in her words, not one penny in middle class tax increases. Warren has little choice but to indulge in fuzzy math. After all, doubling everybody's taxes or delivering a blow to the economy more severe than the Great Recession is no way to win an election. Numerous policy wonks from those uh, at the Urban Institute to Charles uh, Blayhouse uh, at Mercatus Center to Emory University's economist Ken Thorpe have pegged the cost of Medicare for all at more like $30 trillion over 10 years. Warren's ideological fellow traveler, Senator Bernie Sanders, admits Medicare for all would run more than $30 trillion over a decade. Well, on the 28th of last month, the nonpartisan committee for a responsible federal budget dove into how the federal government could possibly come up with $30 trillion. First, uh, they They posit that a new 32% payroll tax on top of the existing 15.3% payroll tax, that would make the total payroll tax on most wage income more than 47%. Payroll tax hikes of that size would uh, contract the U.S. economy uh, by 3.5%, the equivalent of a $3,200 pay cut for the average American on top of uh, all those new taxes. Not a fan of a 47% tax on each and every job? Well, how about a new 25% income surtax above the level of the standard deduction? At $12,200 for individuals, 24000 for married couples. The bottom tax rate would jump from 10% to 35%. The top tax rate would surge to 62%. Capital gains and dividends would be subject to a tax rate of nearly 50%. We could also just double individual and corporate income tax rates to come up with the $30 trillion Medicare for all. It requires over 10 years. The bottom rate would go up to 20%. The top rate, 74%. The federal government would claim nearly 48% of capital gains. Corporations would pay 42% of their income to the federal treasury, almost 20 percentage points more than the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development average. Or we could go the way of Europe and Canada and adopt a value-added tax. Uh, They project that a 42% VAT uh, tax, value-added tax, would raise the necessary $30 trillion over 10 years. Think of it as a hefty sales tax. The value-added tax would immediately increase the prices of most goods and services by 42%. What if we adopt the framing of Sanders and Warren and assume the premiums we pay to private insurers would simply become taxes under Medicare for All? Well, the organization estimates that these mandatory premiums would have to average $7,500 per person or 12000 per person, not currently on public insurance. They'd have to be given higher for families, $20,000 per household by uh, their reckoning. They also modeled how much spending the federal government would have to cut elsewhere to free up $30 trillion over 10 years. The answer, 80%. That's eight zero percent 
Cuts of this magnitude are unrealistically large and certainly could not be imposed on a short term or a short timeline. Yes, it's safe for the... um, Trimming to say that trimming Social Security benefits from 18,000 to 3,600 a year or reducing military headcount from 1.3 million to 270,000 is unrealistic. Some advocates of Medicare for all argue we don't need to pay for it. Deficits don't matter. They would argue um, that would more than double the national debt to 205 percent of GDP, almost double the record debt level we faced after World War II. It would shrink the economy by five percent, reduce individual incomes, an average of forty five hundred dollars by 2030. Finally, there's the approach preferred by Sanders and Warren soaking the rich. Well, they estimate that hiking the top tax rate to 70 percent, phasing out tax breaks for high earners, doubling the corporate tax rate, imposing a wealth tax and taxing financial institutions would raise just one third of Medicare for all's 30 trillion dollar 10 year price tag wouldn't be enough. Even confiscating all income above $204,000 for individuals and 408000 for couples would fail to cover the cost of Medicare for all. And that's without considering the fact that people would stop working after their incomes reached those thresholds. Well, none of the eight potential ways to pay for Medicare for all will ever gain the support of the American people. That's why Warren has resorted to, well, financial fantasy. And again, these are the calculations of an organization that um, has actually crunched the numbers. Now, it's interesting that not only is this nonpartisan organization, uh, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, um, which is a nonpartisan group, is questioning the fuzzy math, if you will. But others on both sides of the political aisle are doing so as well, most loudly the opponents of Elizabeth Warren in this uh, run-up to the Democrat Party nomination. Well, the Kentucky Supreme Court ruled unanimously on Thursday that a printer cannot be forced to print T-shirts that violate his faith. Well, in a case that dragged on for seven years, Blade Adamson, owner of Hands-On Originals, a promotional printer in Lexington, declined to print T-shirts for the Lexington Pride Festival hosted by the Gay and Lesbian Services Organization. Today's decision makes clear that this case never should have happened. That's a quote from Alliance Defending Freedom's senior counsel, Jim Campbell, who argued the case in a statement. For more than seven years, government officials used this case to turn Blaine's life upside down, even though we told them from the beginning that the lawsuit didn't comply with the city's own legal requirements. The First Amendment protects Blaine's right to continue serving all people while declining to print messages that violate his faith. Well, the state's high court wrote in its opinion, this matter must be dismissed because the Gay and Lesbian Services Organization, the original party to bring this action before the Lexington Fayetteville Urban County Human Rights Commission, lacked statutory standing to assert a claim against hands-on originals under the Lexington Fayetteville, uh, rather Fayette Urban County government ordinance. Well, the concurring opinion from Justice David Buckingham cited recent Supreme Court precedent prohibiting compelled speech writing. Uh, Hands-on was in good faith objecting to the message it was being asked to disseminate. Forcing free and independent individuals to endorse ideas they find objectionable is always demeaning. Well, Adamson referred the group to another printer that would do it for the same price, but the group brought a complaint to the Lexington Fayette County Human Rights Commission. Apparently, the issue is uh, currently settled. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 45 minutes after 4 o'clock. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Uh, In our second hour, we'll take a look at the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. It straddles two weekends, last weekend and this coming weekend. We'll fill you in on the details. And 12 places where persecuted Christians really need our prayers. We'll also talk about America's political parties and how they've changed and stayed the same. Rather interesting to look into the backgrounds. All of that coming up in the next hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, how prepared is the United States military to defend the American homeland, win wars abroad, and preserve freedom of commerce internationally? The answer to that question is marginally, not the answer you'd like to hear. Well, marginal is a reality-based description of America's military. That's according to the 2020 Index of U.S. Military Strength set to be released on Wednesday and produced by the Heritage Foundation. The latest index of U.S. Military Strength is one of a kind. It's an assessment that unpacks American preparedness to achieve three primary goals, and it measures U.S. military capacity, capability, and readiness. Now, the metric suggests that the United States has to maintain a sufficiently sized and advanced military force that's ready to fight tonight if needed. Well, to determine military preparedness, the 2020 index considers three variables, the global operating environment, the threats that face America, and the posture of the U.S. military itself. Currently, the United States operating environment is ranked as favorable thanks to American allies and our strong international presence, which allows American interests to be pursued more seemingly Uh, seamlessly rather than not. However, threats to America, such as China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea are classified as high, while U.S. military power to counter those threats is rated only marginal. Very sobering. Insufficient numbers of Army units, subpar infrastructure for Navy vessel repairs, recruitment challenges faces the uh, Air Force, relatively small numbers of Marine Corps battalions, and aging nuclear warheads are samples of the challenges that are besetting the U.S. military. Our adversaries won't wait for us to catch up. Although when you consider it World War I, we managed to do it rather quickly, but at great cost. Their growing belligerence is apparent from Iranian uh, foreign policy in the Strait of Hormuz, for example. This year alone, Iran brazenly shot down a U.S. drone, attacked six merchant vessels in international waters, prompting the U.S. to deploy the USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier strike group to protect American service members and international shipping lanes. But this kind of swift response are impossible without the proper resources. Unfortunately, uh, maintenance backlogs and uh, funding shortfalls within the Navy are providing barriers for full naval readiness to address these kinds of conflicts. That was recently demonstrated by the aircraft carrier USS Harry Truman's delayed deployment. Well, increasingly, uh, belligerent threats coupled with a realistic assessment of U.S. military capability, capacity, and readiness, remember those three areas, necessarily shine the spotlight on the need for consistent and increased defense funding. We spoke a moment ago about Medicare for All and where that funding would come from. One of the resources that uh, has been suggested is to simply reduce uh, funding for the military. And while the global operating environment and foreign threat levels are not fully within American control, our defense budget and consequently our military capacity and capabilities is exclusively within U.S. control. A defense budget that's bolstered is needed specifically to modernize the force to increase its size, especially as Russia, China, and Iran, they fortify their own military capabilities, particularly China, in ways that are uh, impressive and certainly have uh, raised concern 
among military leaders. The United States has to be fully ready to quell instability and conflict when it happens. Well, today the United States possesses the strongest military in the world, but others are working as fast as they can to build capability. Our armed forces deserve the proper resources to operate at full capacity, capability and readiness to defend America and our interests. But that doesn't just happen. It has to be intentional. And there seems to be less intent than we've seen in the past. Well, across the country, math and reading scores have continued a year-long stagnation with students largely showing no progress in academic achievement. That's one major takeaway from the 2019 National Assessment and educa- of Education Progress released earlier last week by the National Assessment Governing Board. Referred to as the nation's report card, the assessment tracks the progress of students in the fourth and eighth grade on reading and mathematics achievement, releasing those findings every other year. The 2019 results were overall rather dismal. Just one third of students in the fourth and eighth grade reached proficiency in math and reading nationally. Harvard professor Paul Peterson writes that in the fiscal decade of the 21st century, white, black and Hispanic student performance was on the rise. But in the second decade, those gains have um, ground to a halt with even hints of decline in reading. For students who are among the lowest 10% of performers on the National Assessment of Education Progress, their scores have dropped significantly since 2009. Brown University professor Susanna Loeb points out the Urban Institute's Matthew Chingos, he notes that although the National Assessment scores rarely fluctuate more than one to two points, eighth grade reading scores declined Four full points this time around. Ten points on the national assessment is the equivalent of roughly one grade level worth of learning. That means, as uh, Chingo observes, the eighth graders are reading at a level comparable to their counterparts of 10 to 20 years ago. Borrowing from Shakespeare, education researcher Matthew Ladner, he calls the scores for students with special needs um, the an Agincourt level disaster. Well, with a few exceptions, including uh, in school choice uh, leader Arizona, eighth grade math scores for children with special needs saw major declines, um, uh, notably most of the states that saw gains in this area. Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Oklahoma and Tennessee have education choice options specifically for children with special needs. So what's to be made of this great stagnation? Well, taxpayers have spent some $2 trillion on K-12 through education programs at the federal level, with a specific goal of narrowing achievement gaps between children from low-income families and their more affluent peers. Well, these policies, launched as part of President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society push, have failed to move the needle on improved education options for students, as these newest scores demonstrate. Well, uh, Peterson writes um, in a new book titled The Not-So-Great Society, the achievement gap in the United States is as wide today as it was in 1971. The performances on math, reading, and science test between the most advantaged and the most disadvantaged students differ by approximately four years' worth of learning, a disparity that has remained essentially unchanged for nearly half a century. Federal per-pupil K-12 education spending has quadrupled in recent terms since the 1960s. The policies and programs launched by Johnson's administration as part of the war on poverty have not helped students, and neither have more recent federal policies promulgated by officials in Washington. Jonathan Butcher, um, in writing uh, The uh, Not-So-Great not Society, points out that what is to be done in education, the first step to improve the quality of pre-K through K through 12 and post-secondary learning options is a bold one, eliminating Washington's involvement. 
Education in the U.S. should return to its roots from the earliest days of the republic when parents had a central role in choosing how and where their child learns. Well, from the great society to no child left behind to the common core national standards advanced under the Obama administration, Washington's intervention in education has been a failure for students and taxpayers alike. Perhaps it's time for a different approach. Some target the Department of Education, others school choice as a way of trying to balance what has been lost. And then there's this young children who get more screen time than doctors recommend for have differences in parts of their brain that support language and self-regulation. That's according to a study at Cincinnati Children's Hospital's Medical Center. It's not clear how the changes affect a child's development, the researchers said. The study put 47 healthy Cincinnati area children between 3 and 5 through magnetic resonance imaging of their brains, as well as cognitive testing. And while they studied, the study didn't learn how screen time changed the brains, it did show that skills such as brain processing speed was affected or were affected. Screen-based media use is uh, prevalent and increasing in homes. Last week, we talked about the fact that it is quadrupled. Child care and school settings at ever younger ages. Dr. John Hutton, who's the author of the study and director of the Reading and Literacy Discovery Center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, says these findings highlight the need to understand effects of screen time on the brain, particularly during stages of dynamic brain development in early childhood, so that providers, policymakers and parents can set healthy limits. The Cincinnati Children's Study was published in the journal of American Medical, uh, the American Medical Association Pediatrics, and follows a string of studies released this year on the effects of screen time on the youngest humans. A Canadian study published in April found that screen time can affect attention spans in preschoolers. A March study found that mobile phone use can delay expressive languages in 18-month-olds, and another uh, pediatric study in April found that screen time can affect how a child performs on developmental testing. All of this playing a role in what happens next. News and traffic here at the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll talk about the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church and how America's political parties have changed and how they've stayed the same. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and Currency. Hey, if you haven't already made plans to join us, Girls' Night Out is coming up this Saturday night. The doors open at 6 o'clock. They're appetizers, a photo booth, fun, followed by an uplifting message with a dessert and coffee reception afterward. Revive is going to be presenting, uh, and uh, we're going to have an opportunity to laugh together, be encouraged, leave feeling refreshed, because, quite frankly, you are worth it. Want to uh, make sure that you join us? You can go to kpdq.com for all the important details. We would love to have you. That's this Saturday night at Northwest Christian Church, the Tigard Campus. Again, the doors open at 6. Appetizers, uh, appetizers, photo booth, fun, great message from Revive Ministries. Well, various groups and churches across the world uh, took part in and are taking part in the annual International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. It's overseen by the World Evangelical Alliance. The International Day uh, of Prayer events um, on Sunday and again on uh, November 10th, with this year's theme being persecuted but not abandoned. 
This November, let us unite in prayer for our persecuted brothers and sisters. That's what the International Day of Prayer organizers in their video posted to Vimeo earlier this month are are asking. The video went through a few examples of recent persecution of Christians, including the bombings in Sri Lanka, violence in Nigeria, crackdowns on churches in Algeria. Too many to count, too many unknown, stated the video, regards the persecution found across the world, all because they bear the name of Jesus. Godfrey Yogaraja, who is executive director of the Religious Liberty Commission, the WEA Commission, said in a statement that over time, the International Day of Prayer has served as a platform to highlight the stories of persecuted Christians and mobilize the global church to respond to their plight. Moreover, in doing so, the International Day of Prayer has also been a source of solidarity and encouragement to persecuted believers by reminding them that they are part of a larger global family of believers. Let's pray that in spite of the pressure and persecution, our suffering brothers and sisters, uh, wherever they may be in the world, would stand firm in their faith, hold fast to the promises of God, and live victoriously in Christ. In fact, as I've spoken with them in various places around the world where they do experience persecution, that is precisely what they are praying for or asking us to pray for. According to Open Doors USA, a Christian persecution watchdog group that helps to promote the uh, International Day of Prayer, research indicates over 245 million Christians are persecuted for their faith worldwide. That is one in nine believers in the world today. Open Doors invites individuals and groups and churches to participate in this occasion of international prayer by downloading reading guides, videos, sermon outlines, social media memes, and other tools that are made available each year. For this year, Open Doors put a special focus on India, a nation that currently ranks number 10 on their annual World Watch list of worst persecutors in of Christians. I was in India this time last year and can tell you firsthand the struggles that they are facing. Well, since the current ruling party took over in 2014, attacks have increased. Hindu radicals believe they can attack Christians with no consequence. And as a result, Christians have been targeted by Hindu nationalist extremists more and more each year. Converts to Christianity from Hinduism bear the brunt of the Christian persecution in India and are constantly under pressure by the state, their community and their families to return to Hinduism. Well, Voice of the Martyrs USA, another persecution watchdog organization, uh, you can uh, upload videos on their website as well. Features an interview, interview rather, with an anonymous North Korean evangelist who tries to share the gospel within the isolated communist dictatorship filmed on the Korean peninsula. The film shares the true story of Pastor Han, who was assassinated by North Korean agents in China because of his effective gospel work among North Koreans. Uh, the story is told through the eyes of one of Pastor Han's disciples, a man who has followed his mentor's footsteps by continuing to share the gospel with North Koreans despite the danger. And that is why we gather to pray on the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Well, as we prepare for the second weekend to do just that, Christian persecution, we should remember, is not new in China and some, so many of the other places. It's growing there. Um, uh, over 245 million Christians live in the 50 countries ranked on the world watch list as worst for Christians. Between November of 2017 and October of 2018, 4,136 known Christians were killed for their faith in these countries. Over 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 2,625 believers were detained, arrested, sentenced, imprisoned, many of them without trial. Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, International Christian Concern, and other organizations have provided information 
uh, prayers and an app to help believers pray for and connect with the persecuted church for the days of prayer held each year. Uh, during this month. Well, besides China, which is perhaps most uh, most widely understood as being a persecutor of believers, there are 10 other places where religious persecution made the headlines in 2019 for your consideration and prayer. The first is Algeria. Over the past two years, the Algerian government has closed 14 of the country's 50 churches, including a 700-member church, a full gospel in um, one town, the largest uh, Protestant church in the North African country. Algeria ranks 22nd on the world watch list, though uh, Algeria's blasphemy laws make it difficult for Christians to share their faith. Most of the new believers in the country come from a Muslim background, according to Open Doors. There's also Egypt. And while Christians there have had more security under Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, including the approval of 168 new churches at the end of last year, they still experience persecution in the majority Muslim country. Islam is the religion of the state. Christians make up 8 to 10 percent of the population, the nearly 100 million people, and it's Sharia law as the main source of legislation. According to the State Department's report on international religious freedom, persecution has increased in that country. This year, Morningstar News chronicled several troubling events so far this year, including mobs converging on churches to harass Christians, threats, and arrests. Eritrea. In that country, the small East African nation that borders the Red Sea, more than 150 Christians were arrested uh, this year. Christian detainees often are held in harsh conditions without ever being formally charged with crimes. People just get arrested. They disappear into the prison system, and sometimes they're released. Sometimes they stay in for years. In August, pro-government bishop uh, was expelled, Abun At. Um, Antonius, I believe is the pronunciation. He's the patriarch of the Eritrean Orthodox Church. Uh, Eritrean gospel singer and torture survivor Helen Burhane met with President Trump in July to highlight the plight of Christians in that country. I mentioned India a few moments ago, but also on that list, Iran. The 800,000 Iranian Christians face intense persecution in that country where converting from Islam is illegal. Last month, Open Doors reported that nine Iranian Christians were Sentenced to five years in prison each for acting against national security, the charge the state often uses to prosecute Christians for their house church activities. According to a report by Middle East Concern, Open Doors Article 18 and Christian Solidarity Worldwide, 29 Christians were detained in 2018, but many more detentions remain undocumented. The country's also reportedly shut down houses of worship, targeted churches that worship in Persian and could attract Muslim-born Iranians. Iraq. Despite the political defeat of ISIS in that country, Christians still suffer persecution, the lingering effects of their their culture and population being systematically destroyed by the Islamic extremists. According to Open Doors, the Assyrian Church of the East, the Syrian Orthodox Church, the Syrian Catholic Church, the Chaldean Catholic Church, the Armenian Orthodox Church remain seriously affected by persecution in Iraq, especially from Islamic extremists and government authorities. In the central and southern part of the country, Christians often don't, pub- uh, often don't publicly display Christian symbols, such as a cross, as this can lead to harassment and discrimination. North Korea, for more than a decade, North Korea has topped the world watch list. We talked about them a moment ago. Saudi Arabia, despite its claims of religious liberty reform, the recent meetings between U.S. evangelical leaders and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia remains one of the most difficult countries in the world for Christians. It ranks 15th on Open Doors world watch list. The country bans the public practice of non-Muslim religions, and there are no churches for the country's 1.4 million 
Christians. Now think about that for a moment. There are no churches. Sri Lanka is on that list. Coordinated attacks by Muslim extremists on three churches, three hotels on Easter Sunday that killed 253 people, left 176 children without one or both parents. It's believed to be the deadliest church attack in Asia in modern history. There's Turkey, where President Erdogan sends mixed messages on religious liberty, according to the World Watch Monitor. In Turkey, Christianity is seen as a Western religion, and evangelicals in particular are considered by many to have links with the USA. The president attended the groundbreaking ceremony of a new Syriac church in Istanbul, the first new church in Turkey since 1923. But at the same time, the government has systematically revoked visas For Christians, there have been all kinds of incidents there. These are just a list of 10. There are certainly many others, but they may inform your prayers on the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church again this Sunday. Up next, we'll hear from Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and how they don't. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, the election of 2016 prompted journalists and political scientists to write obituaries for the Republican Party or prophecies of a new dominance. But it was all rather familiar. Whenever one of the two great parties says a setback, we heard... This is the end of the Democratic Party, or the Republican Party is going out of existence. Yet both parties survive, and, well, they thrive. Well, in How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't, my next guest, American Enterprise Institute resident fellow Michael Barone, a renowned expert on American politics, contends that America's major political parties remain exceptionally resilient, even in the face of Donald Trump's unexpected victory and the hysterical analysis that it spawned. He argues that throughout American history, both parties parties have maintained their essential character while constantly adapting to changing circumstances. Well, Michael Barone brings a deep understanding of our electoral history. Uh, He illuminates how both parties have adapted swiftly or haltingly to shifting opinion and emerging issues, to economic change and cultural currents, to demographic flux. At the same time, each has maintained a constant character. We'll ask him about that. They are the yin and yang, he writes, of the American political life together providing vehicles for expressing most citizens' views in a nation that has always been culturally, religiously, economically, and ethnically diverse. Well, Michael Barone is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, senior political analyst for the Washington Examiner, and author of the new book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. He's one of our nation's most renowned political analysts, co-author of The Almanac of American Politics since its first edition, and author of several other books. We are so delighted to have you with us. Welcome, Michael Barone. Well, thank you very much, Georgine. And you gave a uh, very apt summary of my latest little book, America's, uh, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Uh, <laughs> it's based on, it's a short book, but it's based on my more than 50 years of experience of observing, participating in, commenting on uh, America's political system and par- our partisan election. When I first read the the title of the book, I, f- I found it interesting, but I find the book so much more interesting than I anticipated and learned far more than I expected uh, from, as you po- point out, this little book. Um, let's talk about the, America's two major political parties. Uh, you point out that um, America is home to the oldest and third oldest political parties in the world. Tell us a little bit about the Democratic Party founded in 1832, and the Republican Party, founded in 1854? Well, the Democratic Party, founded 187 years ago to secure the re-election of Andrew Jackson and to prevent the uh, 
rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States. Um, they were successful in accomplishing those goals in the, uh, within less than a decade. The Republican Party founded 165 years ago to oppose the Kansas-Nebraska Act that allowed slavery in territories, the territories where it had previously been forbidden, and uh, to prevent the spread of slavery. And, of course, the Republican Party was successful within 11 years, not only preventing the spread of slavery, but in abolishing slavery altogether with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. But the parties went on, and they've had this basic, each of them has had its basic character, um, even while they changed position on substantive issues, over a long period of time. The Republican Party has always been centered on a core constituency made up of people who are widely considered to be typical Americans, but who by themselves are not a majority. The Democratic Party has always been a coalition of outgroups of people who consider themselves members of uh, groups that are not typical Americans, but who put together when they stick together, which they don't always do, but when they stick together can be a majority. Uh, and that's as true today as it was in 1832 and 1854. You make the point that America's major political parties remain durable and adaptable. And I think many people are questioning that today as third parties emerge or independents are emerging. Do you see the trend that has survived over many, many years continuing even under today's uh, what we consider from our vantage point rather unique set of circumstances? Well, I, I, I think it's likely that they'll continue. Nothing is certain in uh, politics or Democratic uh, Republican governance. But uh, the fact is these parties have each suffered uh, electoral setbacks much worse mm-hmm. than anything we've seen in the last 30 years. The Democrats won a huge victory. The Republicans suffered a huge defeat in 1932 and Franklin Roosevelt won the first of four elections. Uh, that gave us the the New Deal historians have told this story vividly, and it's a familiar one to people acquainted with American political history. But the Democratic Party also suffered a huge reverse in 1920. Uh, Their candidate, after eight years of the Democrat Woodrow Wilson as president, they had inflation, we had uh, uh, recession, we had an influenza epidemic, we had an inconclusive conclusion to World War I, and, um, and a presidential uh, a president who had a stroke and was out of contact with the outer world uh, for at least eight months. And that uh, Democratic Party got only 34 percent of the vote. And yet the Democratic Party rebounded to become competitive with the Republicans in 10 years, just as the Republican Party became competitive with Democrats within 10 years after their huge defeat in 1932. Um, these parties represent uh, forces that are uh, pretty basic in American life, and uh, they just don't go away after they've suffered a big defeat. Uh, they recover, they uh, change their positions, they adapt to new times, and they take advantage of the incumbent party's mistakes. Given that history, and perhaps because that history is little known, why is it so common for journalists and political scientists to forecast the permanent triumph or imminent demise of our major political parties once there's been an electoral win or defeat. I've heard it over the course of my lengthening years uh, so many times that one party or the other is drawing to a close because of the outcome of the latest electoral challenge. Well, there's a in journalism, which I've been participating in or observing closely for more than 50 years. 
um, there's a, a premium on being the first one with a story, on leading the pack, on, on sniffing out an emerging trend before everybody else does. So there's a tendency to say, well, the Democratic Party is through uh, when they've uh, you know lost an election, when a Republican president's been reelected with 51% of the vote, as happened in 2004. Uh, or after President Obama was reelected in 2012, again with 51% of the vote, the Republican Party is through. Um, people tend to forget when you made false predictions of something that uh, never comes to pass. But uh, if, you, if you're out there first with something that does happen, um, there's a professional premium, and they think <laughs> that's perhaps kind of a cynical view. But, you know, it, it, one of the things you want to do in journalism is to try to spot emerging trends, try to spot stories that other people have missed. Um, and sometimes, of course, that produces very productive journalism. The other factor operating is that many of these stories are written by optimists and who are partisan. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the people predicting the demise of the Republican Party tend to be optimistic Democrats. Uh, when predictors of the uh, of the demise of, of 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 the Democratic Party will come from optimistic Republicans or pessimistic Democrats, <laughs> which undermines the credibility of journalism in general and partisans in particular. One of the the cases that you make. Let me just say this: I appreciate that in the book how America's political parties change and how they don't. You give us a context and history that helps us make sense of our current day so that we are a little more cautious in embracing, you know, the latest pronouncement. But one of the things that I found rather interesting is the point you make that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party both maintain their essential character while constantly adapting to changing circumstances. I think people sometimes wonder if a party has moved too far in one direction. For example, the argument now is that Democrats are moving far too far to the left. Are they maintaining their um, their core um, values, their essential character, or are we seeing just the common shifts and adjustments that we've seen over uh, the years? Well, politicians are optimists usually, and uh, they sometimes overestimate the extent to which public opinion is in line with their own uh, policies. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, or they simply stay true to policies they back, even though the public doesn't go along with them. So you saw the Democratic Party lose five out of six presidential elections from 1968 to 88, um, coming right after most political observers said, gee, the Democrats have a natural majority in this country. They proceed to lose five out of six elections. At least some of those, their nominees were well to the left of the part of, of where the public was uh, at that time. And uh you know, eventually Bill Clinton came along, secured a Democratic nomination, which almost nobody seemed to want that year, and uh, came out with a somewhat more moderate platform that adjusted to uh, what, pre you know, the, the problems that were li the programs that were liabilities for previous Democratic nominees. Um, and he won the election. Uh, and Democrats have won four out of the next seven out of the seven um, presidential elections that followed, even as Republicans won majorities in the uh, House of Representatives in most of the congressional elections. So, you know, uh, politics, uh, political uh, programs, uh, politicians, uh, uh, platforms are a mixture of uh, calculation and, and conviction, yeah. um, things they believe to be right and things they believe could be popular. Um, the proportions of calculation and conviction vary in the different politicians. Uh, and sometimes there can be, uh, you know, more conviction 
than there is calculation, and they find that they lose. But sooner or later, as we've seen over 187, 165 years, they adjust. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with uh, my guest, Michael Barone, the book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Fascinating analysis. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Michael Barone. The book is titled How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. I think you will find much surprising information in the book as well as very relevant history. Let's talk about the essential characteristics of both the Republican and Democrat Party. What are those characteristics? And I know that there's some blurring of lines, although with the 2016 election, perhaps less so. What are some of these uh, essential characteristics? Well, the essential characteristic of the Republican Party, I think, over the years has been that it's centered on a core constituency of people who are considered by themselves and others to be typical Americans, but by themselves are, are not a majority of the public. They need more votes in order to win. The Democratic Party has always been a coalition of opposites of different groups considered not to be typical Americans, but who, if they're united, make up a majority. So in the 19th century, um, the Andrew Jackson coalition was Southern slaveholders and later segregationists on the one hand, and uh, Catholic immigrants in big cities. Uh, they basically, the Democrats believed in segregation in the South and the saloon in the North. Um, and uh, the Republican core constituency in its beginnings in the 1850s were New England Yankees and their offspring who moved westward across the Young Republic to upstate New York, uh, northern Ohio, southern Michigan, founded the city of Chicago, moved on beyond to Iowa and Nebraska. That was the core support for the Republican Party. Um, And today, obviously, you have different coalitions. The core Republican constituency, I I would characterize as white married Christians, thought by many people to be typical Americans. Uh, Once people fulfilling that description were a majority of the population, they're not a majority anymore. Uh, and uh, But they're a large group, and they are faithful to the Republican Party by and large, and uh, the, Re- the Republicans try to build majorities from there. Uh, the Democratic Party is a coalition of outside groups. If you look at the groups that typically vote 85 to 90 percent Democratic, you see uh, relatively low-income, non-college graduate black Americans, uh, very religious, tend to be avid churchgoers and believe in traditional relig- Christian morality, uh, and uh, what my friend Joel Kotkin calls gentry liberals, uh, high-income people with uh, college degrees, graduate school degrees, uh, white people, uh, very secular. Very, This is the group that is least likely to believe in traditional uh, religions and more likely to believe uh, in, in, uh, in, in that religious conduct should not in any way be privileged and kind of dubious about uh, the, how far the free exercise of religion guaranteed by the First Amendment should go. Um, those are groups that have very different incomes. They have very different uh, religious beliefs and beliefs about the price of religion and public life and public issues. Um, they have very different views on, for example, same-sex marriage. Uh, but uh, they are united in supporting the Democratic Party, at least if somebody doesn't come forward and spotlight those issues that make them the biggest issues of the day. 
How did the two parties evolve in the 20th century, and how do you see that either continuing or changing in the 21st? Well, the Democratic Party in the 20th century uh, was a party that for many years contained a large conservative bloc as well as Mm -hmm. uh, Democratic liberals who backed the policies, the big government policies of Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, The conservative group came partly from the Democrats' 19th century support of free markets and free trade. Uh, didn't believe in government interference. Obviously, that changes under Wilson and Roosevelt, but many Democrats continue to identify with that. And it comes from Southern Democrats in particular, um, carrying a Democratic uh, Party identification that goes back to the Civil War and to um, opposition to the conduct of the Civil War or the aftermath, where opposition to Republicans attempts to secure equal rights for black Americans in Reconstruction period. And um, that lasts a long time because the Civil War was a hugely searing event. I mean, go to any small town uh, that had, you know, a thousand people in a township in uh, in the 1860s. And in the town, in the courthouse square, there's a monument there in the north and in the south. Uh, it's a monument of, with names of people who died in that Civil War, 30, 40, 50 names in a town of a 1,000. That was a really searing impact. So you have in 1960 the um, John F. Kennedy, liberal Democrat, Catholic, from Massachusetts. His number two state in percentage terms was Georgia, southern Georgia, Baptist state, uh, you know, a, a, a conservative state on a number of issues, and most black people in Georgia then were not allowed to vote. Um, they, why did they vote for Kennedy? Well, it was only 96 years since General Sherman's troops marched through Georgia, and they were mm-hmm. still angry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so attitudes changed as uh, President Jimmy Carter from South Georgia um, is a good example uh, of that. Uh, his political views, I think, during his presidency evolved significantly and in a positive direction, in my opinion, uh, from what those he probably held as a younger man in segregated Georgia. Um, but the, uh, you know, that, that took a long time to change because the impact of the Civil War was so great. Um, likewise, you have liberal Republicans uh, in many of the northern states uh, and in some of the southern states, too, although they seldom won statewide elections there before the 1970s. And they were, uh, why were they, you know, they supported many of the New Deal government expansion programs, people like Governor, four-term Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York. But they opposed, why did they oppose the Democrats? Well, they felt the Democrats ran corrupt urban political machines. They felt the Democrats got, were dependent on the votes of violent, prone labor unions. They disliked the Democrats because they had a lot of segregationist Southerners in their party. Um, that was true in 1960. By the 1980s, those factors had really kind of vanished from the political scene. And Nelson Rockefeller's heirs, including his nephew, Jay Rockefeller, ran for office and won as a Democrat. Mm. In what ways um, have the parties not changed in in uh, nod to the subtitle of your book? Well, not changed. I think that same basic character. Republicans clustered around a core constituency. Democrats, a uh, a coalition of of of, uh, of, of various groups, mm-hmm. of groups that are often have conflicts among each other. I mean, you know, the Demo- the the we, this year we see voters who identify themselves as Republicans are giving ninety percent support to Donald Trump. That's even though he is different on some issues like trade, immigration, and some aspects of foreign policy 
from the previous most recent Republican president, George W. Bush, uh, for whom people who identified as Republicans gave 85 to 90 percent support as well. So the Republicans tend to support their incumbents in most circumstances. Uh, Democratic Party, we see some uh, differences on cultural issues in the Democratic Party. I noted that the presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke from El Paso, Texas, uh, said that he doesn't uh, want uh, he doesn't want ta- he wants tax exemptions to be taken away from churches mm-hmm. and religious institutions that don't perform same-sex marriage. Well, that's going to close a bunch of Roman Catholic churches and uh, welfare institutions in his hometown of uh, El Paso, Texas, where they serve a predominantly Mexican-American population. It's going to close down or severely impact uh, historically black churches, which have played a tremendous, go back to it before the Civil War, and have played a tremendously constructive role in American life for uh, almost two centuries. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they don't, uh, conduct same sex marriages. Uh, so that's, you know, Beto O'Rourke right now is uh, not running well in the polls. And that statement probably didn't get a lot of traction among Democrats. But, uh, I think that, uh, if you were running ads for another candidate, Democratic candidate, you want to win, uh, votes of black Americans who are a majority of the Democratic primary turnout in South Carolina, the early state of South Carolina. Uh, you might want to bring up that issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book, once again, is titled How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. And rather than a dry, uninteresting tome, it is fascinating in its historic detail and relevance to not only what's what we've seen in the past, but what's happening today. Michael Barone, it is such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for talking. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for your kind words. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, there's been some interesting development on the celebrity front. And before I move forward, I think it's important to point out that in the kingdom of God, there are no celebrities. There aren't people who are on the scale of uh, better known than lesser known, and somehow those who are better known in life uh, somehow have a place of uh, prominence. That's not the way the kingdom of God functions, but it is always encouraging when someone comes to faith and you know the environment from which they've come, and it tends to be counter, um, counter-Christian, it's counter-cultural, uh, to walk in faith. Well, I was uh, delighted to learn that Lamar Odom, who was an NFL player of some significant note, had also been married to a Kardashian at one point. He made a public declaration of his conversion to Christianity, thanking the Lord for keeping him alive. He, uh, the two-time NBA champion, wrote on an Instagram last week, thanking the founding pastor of the church, Dr. A.R. Vernon, who led him in the prayer of salvation. He said, I got saved at the World Church this weekend. Nowadays, I'm doing the best I can in walking with the Lord. Well, the recent Dancing with the Stars contestant who nearly died from a drug overdose at a Nevada brothel back in 2015 that put him in a coma went on to say, I had to show Jesus my appreciation for keeping me alive. Like anyone else, I was um, just very glad and overwhelmed with all that had been um, I've been through. He realized there's a place in his heart that only God can fill. No championship rings, no women, no amount of money. Only Christ can fill that place that he designed. 
The pastor speaking to Fox News pointed out, I think that Lamar has come to that place in his life where he knows what's lasting and eternal. I'm overjoyed for him. Well, the senior pastor added that he wants everyone to be patient with Odom like any new believer. It's a process. And I think that's so important. Oftentimes when a celebrity, in quotes, comes to faith in Christ, the first thing everyone wants to do is exploit their celebrity for the sake of the gospel. When in fact, they're a new believer. They're just starting out. Uh, And they need to be protected. I think about the Apostle Paul. We read from one verse to another and we assume the Apostle Paul had that uh, event that took place on the road to Damascus. And then right away he was out preaching. There's a significant amount of time before he makes a public uh, declaration. Uh, So we need to give room to those who have some celebrity in this life so that they can grow in their faith. It takes time to become the Christian that I know he wants to be, the pastor says, and we're committed to helping him find a good local church in the city that he's in. And I encourage him to read the Gospels 20 minutes every day and commit himself to Jesus through prayer. So what the pastor from the church where he came to faith is suggesting is you need to find yourself in a good local church in the city that he's from. You need to read the scriptures every day to grow in your faith and to spend some time in prayer developing that relationship. Wearing an orange Cleveland Browns Defend the Land sweatshirt, the six foot ten ex-husband of Khloe Kardashian, came up on stage to publicly declare his conversion at the church in, um, I think it's Cuyahoga County, Ohio. He texted me and said, I want to be baptized this morning, the pastor told the congregation. Number one, we don't have a pool that deep, but the Holy Spirit wants me to tell you, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Well, he should be baptized. I'll just leave it at that. I'm quoting. Well, as the worship band played instrumental music um, to Waymaker, one of my favorite songs of late, the pastor prayed with Odom while he lifted his hands uh, upward. Y'all praise God for salvation, Brother Vernon said, before embracing Odom as the audience cheered. Well, Odom's personal training and girlfriend uh, stood beside him in a matching hoodie uh, with tears streaming down her faith. Nothing better than a man of God keeping uh, uh, pushing through uh, life. God willing, I'll be right here by your side, uh, she wrote on her Instagram page. Well, uh, Odom recently partnered with Fight the New Drug, an anti-pornography organization, after he told TMZ in an interview that he was cutting out candy and porn. Uh, he joins other celebrities like Kanye West in turning their lives to Jesus this year. Omar also penned a book, Darkness to Light, candidly sharing his problems as a sex addict, a drug addict, paying for plenty of abortions, all to fill a void. I wanted to be loved, but I could never find love, he said. The 39-year-old who plans to start a career as a public speaker now said in interviews that he regretted cheating on Kardashian and lying to her about his addiction to cocaine during their four-year marriage. And again, he's a new believer, and I hope he's uh, afforded every opportunity to grow in his faith before his celebrity is exploited and somehow that undermines the the work that God uh, would do in his life. I mentioned last week that I happened on the night before I read this story to watch a one-hour program in which it was simply Lamar Odom talking about his life and his background. His father was a drug addict. He had a very, very difficult life. His mother died when he was quite young. And learning the details of his life, I, at the time, understood a bit more about how he ended up where he ended up. The next day, reading the headline in um, a Christian Post about his coming to faith, and then later in other outlets as well, uh, I was rejoicing that he has, uh, he admitted at the end of the, the program I watched last week, he was just searching. He didn't know himself. He didn't know what direction his life should take. So I'm rejoicing at the uh, uh, the change that he has now publicly proclaimed in coming to faith in Christ. And then there's this, Kanye West, who's also a new convert. And I pray that while he's 
taken a position of leadership in that he is providing opportunities for worship on Sunday uh, mornings. I hope he will be discipled very carefully and for a very long period of time in his faith. But one Louisiana pastor uh, praised his uh, last-minute Sunday service where about a 1,000 people raised their hands to commit their lives to Christ on Friday, calling it a new wave of revival. Uh, Now, West opened up his Sunday service, which isn't always held on Sunday, to the public a few months ago, traveling across the country to hold gospel services, perform songs from his new album, Jesus is King, hoping that that's not the primary purpose behind it. A pastor at Crossroads Church in Lafayette attended the Friday service with his wife. It was outdoors. It was held at a field provided by Bethany Church in Baton Rouge uh, in Louisiana, but wasn't affiliated with the church. Tonight, worship was lifted. The name of Christ was exalted. The word of God was preached, a multitude prayed together, the gospel was clearly proclaimed, and an opportunity to respond was given, he said on Friday, writing about the experience in a crowd of 6,000 people from all walks of life, all ages, all races. I witnessed over 1,000 people respond to the gospel by raising their hands to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Quoting a portion of Isaiah 43:19 and 1 Corinthians 1:27, the pastor also added, say what you want and think what you want, but trust me when I tell you the Spirit of the living God was indeed present. I danced, I wept, stood in awe of God's redemptive work, and can honestly say that tonight I witnessed a new wave of revival firsthand. End quote. The Jesus Walks singer, along with 80 members of his iconic Sunday service choir, opened up with Closed on Sunday from the album Jesus is King um, that just uh, racked up his ninth consecutive number one album on the Billboard 200 chart. Along with other gospel songs, um, he performed Every Hour, Selah, Follow God, and Jesus is Lord, to just give an example. I hope we are praying for these, again, in quotes, celebrities who have recently come to faith in Christ, uh, that this would not be a a temporary thing, that it wouldn't uh, be connected in any way with their celebrity, but they would have a genuine encounter with Christ and a growing faith that would bear fruit that would remain. As I mentioned uh, last week, uh, I listened to some of Kanye West's music. I've listened to him talk about his uh, faith in Christ. I've uh, studied some of the people he surrounded himself by, and I'm convinced that it's a genuine uh, conversion on his part. But my prayer is that it's not hijacked because of who he is, because of the kind of celebrity he has enjoyed and the pressures that come along with that. So keep these two guys and certainly other new converts in your prayers that they would be made disciples, not just believers who um, remain, you know, just milk drinkers rather than those who enjoy the meat of God's word. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Randy Newman, unlikely converts, improbable stories of faith and what they teach us about evangelism. I just gave you two examples. We'll talk with him about that tomorrow. Have a great night. Oh, by the way, I should mention James Blend, producer, Clark Hilton engineer. Thanks, guys. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.